morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, September 23rd, we're studying Proverbs chapter 16, verses 8 through 24. The wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord is for all people, from the lowly to the mighty, from the citizens to the kings. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's good to be with you, and greetings to our listeners in the name of the wisdom from on high, Jesus Christ our Lord. Pastor Philippek, as we get started this morning, the question of context is just different when it comes to the book of Proverbs. There's not necessarily a relationship between one verse and the next that's at least always discernible. But just any introductory comments as we jump into our section of Proverbs today, what do we need to know going in? Sure. So this belongs to a genre of literature within Scripture um, known as wisdom literature. It is primarily Solomon who does a lot of this, and we'll encounter that again today. I'm going to save some of those comments on Solomon, because one of the core things that Solomon prays for when he becomes king as a child, of course, is that wisdom and understanding to lead the people of God. So we're going to see and go back into that story uh, today as we go along, talking a, a lot about wisdom. But you usually have one of two things going on then within wisdom literature. You have Solomon speaking the wisdom from the Lord that he has received, or other pieces of Israel that he has collected. And all of those things focus on on usually two things, and both have to do with wisdom. One is the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, the trust in the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then from there, you also have a lot of talk about righteousness and wickedness, which you could easily, kind of for the sake of our listeners today and, and for the sake of what you're doing, simply talk about what do you... How do you live your life, essentially, uh, in, with, and under Christ and his cross? So we're going to see that that's a kind of a strange uh, comment for me to make, because, man, we don't have Jesus coming along right now in, in this period. That's, that's later on. We're in the heart of Israel before the division of the two kingdoms, and we're talking about wisdom literature. But we're going to actually see how, how these two things are intricately woven together, faith in Christ and the, and the good works that flow from faith in Christ, the righteousness, the wickedness, and all that it encompasses everywhere in between there. So those are kind of the things to keep in mind as you read through Israel's wisdom literature. All right. So Proverbs 16, beginning at verse 8. I'm going to read about half the text on this side of the program and then half on the other side. So Solomon writes, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, 
and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. And I'll pause there. Pastor Philippek, we'll just start at the beginning then. Verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Why is it better to have little with righteousness than great revenue, a lot of money, if you got it in an unjust way? So this is a multifaceted answer, but just, just by way of introduction, I'll say it like this, short, sweet, and to the point. It's a matter of a clean conscience. Now, what, what I mean by that is, for this text here in verse 8, it's better to have a little, right, than to, and be right and justified with God. Being in a right relationship and having little wealth is better than having great wealth that you obtained through injustice and unethical conduct. That's sort of a, a way of getting at what, what's being said here, sort of a paraphrase of that. When you get into this, one cannot help then but think of what has gone on in Israel with all of the uh, idolatry and the gaining of riches through uh, Baal worship and all the things that Israel has been tempted not to do, but yet they have fallen into the temptation on the other way. They've been told not to do it, but they've fallen into the temptation time uh, and time again. It's the wandering of, in wilderness and things like that, the golden calf scenario at the Mount of, of Sinai back in the book of Exodus. So Israel's seen some things along this point, and they will continue to see things. This is, this is what is echoed later on in the prophet Micah, who in the time of Israel, and all of the things going on in Micah, living, of course, in the, in the time of the, the captivities there, prophesying actually to the, the captives, we actually have a, a whole controversy of, of dealing with sin, right? So one can't help think of Israel in these days, in this time period, all that they've gone through, uh, wandering in the wilderness, right? They're committing grievous sins of idolatry. They're offering sacrifices to the Lord after they've committed, and, you know, they're, they're living kind of as if, okay, I'm just going to do this, and I'll mix my worship here, and I'll do some sacrifices to this God or that God. I'll sacrifice a little to the Lord, and you know what? I can do whatever I want to do. It doesn't matter. I'm, you know, I just will um, make the appropriate sacrifices to, to God for my sin. It'll, it'll all be okay. It doesn't really matter what I do. But our Lord in the midst of un, the unrepentance of Israel, announces to the prophet Micah, as he has through, through Moses and others throughout the way in, in chapter 6, what shall I come before the Lord with? In Micah chapter 6, shall I bow down before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? So asking that question, like, what do you do with sin? How do you deal with sin? Is it just a matter of sacrifice and going through motions here? What is this? And Micah actually answers this problem that Israel has had all along that goes even all the way back to Adam in the garden, the sin that is in us and that we ourselves commit by nature, sinful and unclean, sinning and thoughtward and deed. So it's not just about going through the motions of sacrifice with an unrepentant heart. Actually, it's about a contrite heart. So Micah then gives them this wisdom, which is echoing what Solomon is doing here in the text. So you can kind of think of it along these lines. Micah says, what does the Lord require of you to do justice? to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries out to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of him, the rod, who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of the wicked and the house of the wicked, the 
the scales of measurement and to thee of curse? Shall I acquit the man of the wicked with scales and a bag of deceitful weights? Notice how we get into those, those weight things here, even with Micah. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and the tongue is deceitful in their mouths. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sin. So, notice this. You can't just do whatever you want to do and think God will forgive me anyway. That unrepentance, that flippancy towards sin is Israel's temptation. And what Solomon is is saying here is that to do that will actually lead to a destruction and incurring of the Lord's wrath and judgment. And deep down inside, Pastor Apple, we know this, right? The law, albeit marred, it's still written on our hearts, albeit marred by sin, it's still hardwired in the fabric of creation. So when you do something that you know is, is wrong, right? You, you obtain riches and revenues through injustice and unethical conduct. Well, first and foremost, you are incurring the Lord's judgment. You are doing something against your brother and your neighbor. You are using them as a tool for your own selfish gain. And to do that, to do that unethical behavior tarnishes tarnishes any wealth that you have and brings about the justice of God. So that's, that's kind of a summary of what's going on here. Unethical behavior tarnishes great gain and wealth and will ultimately bring about the judgment of God. So it's better than to have a little bit of wealth and to be in a right standing, a right relationship with God than to have great wealth and to be at odds with God because of how you have sinfully obtained it and conducted yourself. So you might see this as an explication of the previous verses, 6 and 7, about turning from evil and making peace with your enemies by actually walking in the way of the Lord. On the other hand, to, to actually have a little bit of a little bit and to walk righteous before our Lord means that you have a clean conscience. Because it means that even though you don't have much. How you have conducted yourself according to the word of the Lord and clinging to him in faith, you don't have the, the sin, the unethical guilt, the shame weighing you down. You don't have it eating away at you. You're not kicking yourself privately and mind thinking, why did I do that? Everybody says, oh, look at him. He's rich and all this, but I know how I obtained this. You don't have that guilt and that weighing down and that plaguing and What's more, you won't incur God's wrath. So, so it's better to have a clean conscience before God, to have a little bit and to be in a right standing with God than to obtain much in this world that will perish and pass away unethically and unjustly. And so as not only incur the judgment of God, but also to have those things eat away at you day after day after day. Well, what you said there about in gathering treasures in this world that will pass away, I think is a part of this verse as well, that that the Christian knows, the one who fears the Lord knows that true wealth is ultimately given in the resurrection. True wealth is found in Christ, in that wisdom. And if I forsake that wealth and wisdom for the wealth of this world, for great revenue that I get by bending the rules a little bit, I'm going to have a bad conscience now and and I'm I'm potentially losing the eternal treasure 
that I have in Christ. So, I, I mean, this is another one of those examples in the book of Proverbs where you, you see the foundation of the resurrection behind it all. It, uh, that's one thing I've discovered going through the book of Proverbs that I, I don't think I expected to find, but I, I'm convinced it's there, is that Solomon writes this wisdom founded so often on the reality of the resurrection. I mean, and that's where a verse like this only makes sense if you're expecting some sort of reward outside of what I can get for myself right here and right now. And for Christians, that's the resurrection. Absolutely. And to frame it in our liturgical context that we experience every Sunday, what you have said concerning how this works with the conscience, mentioning again that that you have a guilty conscience, and there's an incurring of the judgment, the, the eschatological and depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the fire prepared for the devils and his angels, that separation from God, we would say in in our liturgical Sunday morning context that we deserve your temporal Mm. and eternal punishment. I would see that kind of temporal consequence as that guilt, as that eating away, as that whatever. You might have riches, but there's a consequence by which taking something in an unjust, unethical, ungodly way will do temporally, and it has a greater reality of the incurring God's wrath in the latter days of eternity when he returns and casts all those who do not believe him into the fires of hell separated from him. So there's that, that temporal and eternal punishment, present and eternal punishment um, aspect of this. Now, as as the text moves on here in Proverbs 16, Pastor Philibeck, we've said, you know, there's not always a very clear connection from one verse to the next, but several of the verses that we've got in our text for today deal with the matter of a king, wisdom for a king, wisdom in acting toward a king as a, as a subject of the king. And the, the first place the king shows up is in verse 10 of our text. Again, the king shows up several verses in a row. Verse 10 says this, an oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. What is this saying about a king? Are we to think that a, a king is somehow sinless when he speaks? Yeah, I'm sure that uh, many of the monarchies would would read this passage and love this passage and have it read uh, to all of their subjects. Uh, in our in our current context, we might think, even though it's not uh, one-to-one correlation with our particular polity in the U.S., you might think of the president. Wait, wait a minute, a president n- never sins when he speaks. A king never sings when he speaks. Like, what's going on here? They sing all the time, right? That's how we'd think of this. But I don't think you can take it that way. The text of Proverbs 16, it's not saying that a king or or a particular government never sins. And the reason I say that is, look at verse 12, right? It says, it is an abomination to kings to do evil. So notice how a king doing evil is actually portrayed as anathema, an abomination, something that should not it's something that should not be done. You should not, kings should not be given to evil, right? They're not given to evil. Kings are not given to sin against their subjects. Kings should actually deal wisely, acting in righteousness and executing justice upon the wrongdoer. So what, what Solomon is doing here is he's laying out kind of, first and foremost, that there's a standard for a king. Whose standard? I mean, how, what's, what, uh, what's the standard we talked about? Kings shouldn't do evil. Kings are not given to sin against their subjects. They should deal wisely, act in righteousness, act justice. Like, that's what Solomon's pushing for. But whose standard is this? 
Well, this isn't just some man-made, somebody along the line kind of created this standard. This is God's standard. He establishes governing authorities to be his representatives. This truth we have encountered elsewhere in Scripture, as I've been on on the show before. Romans 13 echoes the truth of, of the Proverbs 16, when it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will, have, and you will receive his approval. For if he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out the wrath of God on the wrongdoer. So a king, all governing authorities are as God's servants. They represent him. They are accountable to him. And thus, they are to act wisely. They're to act for the good of the people and not to tolerate lawlessness and sin. When they see lawlessness and sin going on in their own nation, they are to punish it. They are to rule in accordance with the word and standard that is set forth for them by God himself. And if they are doing that then it's not simply them who are ruling, but rather God who is ruling through them. So if you do something wrong, if you commit a public sin and you're caught doing it, and you are sentenced and you are punished by that governing official, by a king, whatever the case may be, then it's not simply them, but it is the Lord who is executing justice upon you through his chosen representative, in this instance, a king. This would get into the things that you are familiar with. Uh, our listeners are familiar with with uh, Luther's estates from the, the fourth commandment. Parents are God's representatives, God at work through them. Uh, pastors, his chosen instruments. Governing officials, his chosen instruments, right? But the language of, of Proverbs 16, not sinning in judgment, and a just balance and scales are the Lord's and all his weights and measures of are his work, all the weights in his bag are his work, that is reflective of the fact that God has actually established this office of a king. And Solomon is talking about the office of the king when the king and what the king is given to do in, is in, in accordance with the way God has set forth, that they deal in good and honesty and justice for the good of their people. So this is this is a, a talk about the office of king. Now, Pastor Apple, uh, to give this a little bit more teeth, um, just than going to other places in Scripture and saying Romans 13, which isn't, which isn't a bad thing, but to kind of stick with, even within the context, we would be remiss if we did not comment a bit more on the end of verse 12. It's one thing for me to say, you know, God establishes the governing authorities to be his representatives and then cite Romans 13 and go off of that. But it's another thing to see that in light of the context of Proverbs 16 and our Old Testaments. And in Proverbs 16 here, we've been talking about the, the Lord's steadfastness, his faithfulness to us in the face of sin, as well as how God is in control of everything. And how he works for the good of everyone, even in the vain plotting of man, God uses those things 
for his purposes to bring about good. You know, one might even think of Genesis 50, and you might think of Joseph on this one when he says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used or meant it for the good, right? God bringing good out of evil is not the cause of why it happened, but God is going to use your evil purposes for his glory and his plan. So God being in control of all these things. That's what we've been talking about throughout Proverbs 16. So I suppose you could see verse 12 as simply saying, kings shouldn't do evil because the office or the throne of a king is supposed to be one of, of wisdom and truthfulness and justice. You could see it like that, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, that's true. But I think it misses the heart of the text. Notice how the final words, it is not just the throne is righteousness or founded by righteousness, but rather or founded on righteousness, but rather established by righteousness. So not, not the throne is righteousness or founded on righteousness, but established by righteousness or set up by, instituted by righteousness. The word zadach, zedekah, in the context is reminiscent of the usage in Jeremiah 23, where the Lord speaks to his people who had been led astray into idolatry yet again by their own kings, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. They have failed to trust in and cling to the one true God who brought them out of Egypt out of the house of slavery, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They had abandoned that God to go and serve the Baals, the Baals, right? And um, Dagon, Molech, all, all of those things, right? And so they are delivered into captivity. And in the midst, in the context of that looming exile and the divine judgment of 70 years of Babylonian captivity and in a judgment of, of Assyria that will not come back from captivity, God actually speaks to Jeremiah about their hope of return and restoration. How their deliverance from sin and captivity, you could say, would be brought about. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which the Lord, then this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our zarcha, right? Our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. That Lord is our righteousness. That righteous branch that has been raised up is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. So the title of, of righteousness, the Lord is our righteousness. He will establish his throne by righteousness. Um, it not only echoes Romans 13, but it actually intensifies the meaning all the more to say that the kingly throne on which the governing authorities sit and from which they govern is none other than the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the true King of the nations, Jesus Christ. He alone deals wisely and executes justice and righteousness on behalf of and for the nations. So uh, this is established, even in, in Proverbs, you could say that the, not just, oh, let's go to Romans 13 here, but this same thought of Paul in Romans 13 is right echoed here in Proverbs 13 before Paul spoke it. It's here that the, the throne that which an office occupies is, is Christ's throne, as, as Yes, prophet. As, yes, priest. We talk about that one, but we also talk about the office of, of Christ as, as king, king of the nations, right? So this is, this is that whole thing that 
even our rulers are accountable to Christ, and they are to deal with with them from that office, acting wisely for the good of their people and executing justice upon the sinners. Hmm. Which that also then has application to the way the subject relates to the king. Now, I mean, of course, in, in verse 12, you've got, it's an abomination for kings to do evil, and the foundation is what you just laid out. But also then how the subjects relate to the king, that's laid out for us in verses, oh, 14 and 15, especially. I suppose 13 as well. Righteous lips are the delight yeah. of the king. We've got about two and a half minutes here on this side of the break, Pastor Philippek, to, to look at not only the wisdom of the king ruling with righteousness and justice, but then how the subjects relate to the king in a, in a similar way. Yeah, so the, the, the Lord, our righteousness, Jesus Christ, his throne in which he rules through those individual representatives that are in that office of, of government, when they are dealing with their subjects according to his word and according to who he is. And that is verse 12. That's when the king, um, that's when the king is thrown is established by righteousness and the justice and balances are the Lord, all the things that we talked about, that there's not a sin in judgment. But when the people see that, when the people see their king acting for their good and for their benefit, then actually, quite frankly, that causes them to respond. It causes them to respond in accordance with the mercy and the wise dealings and the justice of the king. So they, they speak in the way of the king, the righteous lips. They speak, the, they echo the words of the true king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Their response is a response of, of faith to our Lord and how he's dealing with everything. And the king delights in that. He delights in them. And he loves them to speak what is right. Our Lord loves us to speak what is in accordance with his word, even as we see it play out in his representatives here in the world. And, and if we fail to do that, a king's wrath is a messenger of death. He brings that justice to bear, dealing it wisely and shrewdly, but also bringing that, that justice to bear. And in light of the king's face, there is life, and his favor is like clouds that bring the, the spring rain. So the, that countenance of the king, the king, the king dealing with you in accordance with the word of the Lord, in accordance with who he is and truth, Christ being the way, the truth, right? Truth is not just a proposition, it's a person. So dealing by way of all that Christ is and says, that that causes things to grow. It causes things to come to life and to, and to spring forth. It's kind of like those, those rains of the spring, right? You get a good rain and this barren, desolate, oh, sin-filled, uh, looking, looking place, oh man, it springs to life from gray to green, right? And so this is, this is the picture that Solomon gives us of a king whose throne is established by and stands in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, dealing in truth and justice with the people and the people's response to this. This is the way it should be, and this causes not all the, the bickering, the backbiting, the death you know, of the nation, but it actually is how the nation is sustained in this world, how God continues to grant growth and life here in time. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. Going to take a short break. We'll be right back. 
Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, September 23rd, and we are studying Proverbs chapter 16, verses 8 through 24. We've got Pastor Adam Philippek with us. He serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Just a reminder... If we do not get to the proverb that you really want to know more about, please give us a call at 314-996-1542. That's the listener comment line. You can leave us a message. You can also send us an email at kfuo at kfuo.org. Let us know what proverb you want to hear more about. There will be bonus podcast material that will come out on kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcast, you'll be able to hear more about your favorite proverb in just a short, about a five-minute segment. Myself and another guest will tackle that for you, and you'll be able to listen to it online in that bonus content. Pastor Philippek, we read verses 8 through 15 on the first half of the program. We're going to take a look at verses 16 through 24 now, and I'll read the text for us. Solomon writes, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. That's the end of our text for today. That was Proverbs 16, verses 16 through 24. So Pastor Philippek, we'll just start at the beginning of this section again. Verse 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold? And then, of course, the parallel to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. That that reminds me of what we were talking about at the beginning with, with verse 8, the idea of, of true wealth is not found in the riches of this life. It's found in, well, here it's it's wisdom and understanding. Take us into verse 16. Yeah, so I think that you are wise to see this in light of verse 8 and in light of all that went before it, because this is a further explication of what Solomon has already done. Why is wisdom better than gold? We kind of need to ask that question. To answer that, though, properly, we kind of need to know a thing or two about wisdom. And Solomon, man, he knows a thing or two about wisdom. And this is what I started with at the, at the start of our broadcast this morning. In 1 Kings 3, when Solomon is a child, he is made king. God appears to him in a dream and says, ask 
what I shall give you. Now, as a child, Solomon knows he has no wisdom. He has no understanding. He has no might. He has no power in and of himself. He has no status in the ancient world. I mean, what, what exactly are our children in the ancient world? They're, they're sort of just dependent upon their parents. His situation is unique in that he is thrust into kingship, but children as a whole in the ancient world, you know, they're, they're utterly dependent upon someone else for everything. So in the eyes of the, eyes of the world and, and in his kingdom, he's just a child. So he could have asked for a number of things, I suppose, that in our eyes and in the world's eyes would make a king great, right? Um, but he doesn't. He does, not, he does not ask, oh, just let them see me as a, as a wonderful thing, uh, as a wonderful ruler, give them eyes to see me as the wisest person ever, anything like that. He actually, his interest is not in himself. It's wholly other. Uh, he, he recognizes that the reason his father David was as good a ruler and sat on the throne for so long was it because David leaned not on his own understanding, but rather steadfastly trusted in God who had made a promise to him to establish his throne forever. David's throne would be established forever. First Kings uh, 6, 7, those sorts of things echo that same promise as we, as we build the temple, which is what Solomon would, would be familiar then with as you, as you go through Solomon's narrative. And those echoes of, of that understanding coming through in the building of the temple. So what that means is that, that Solomon knows uh, that David recognizes, first and foremost, that, that he's not the be-all of end-all end of everything. Rather, he is simply, as we talked about with kings earlier, a representative. He is a servant. To put it differently, um, he recognizes that these are God's people. They're not my subjects to do whatever I want with. These are God's people. He has placed me into his office, and God rules them through me. And so I am accountable to him. So notice then that even in David's life, when when David sins, you you see that that concrete recognition that God's word is authoritative, as as he did throughout his kingship, even in his own private life. When David sins... For instance, in, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 with Bathsheba, and he is confronted with that sin. He recognizes that God's word is, is authoritative, even over his own life. So when David is confronted with this sin, he doesn't flee from it. He doesn't justify himself. He confesses his sins, and he pleads to God for mercy and writes one of the, you know, the most beautiful psalms, the most beautiful um, songs that you can do. Psalm 51, right? Creating me a clean heart. All of that stuff. Cleanse me with hyssop. In faith, then, he receives the forgiveness of sins from the mouth of God's representative, the prophet Nathan, right? So, so this is how that happens. Solomon recognizes this, and he, and he prays for the same thing. For Solomon's prayer is this, for an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people. Notice how Solomon's language is used, like David's before him. These, your great people, not my subjects. Hmm. Not They need to bow down to me and recognize that I am the best king that has ever lived, and I'm better than my father. All, all the sins of Rehoboam that will come along, and, and Jeroboam, right? Uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, later on, that divides the kingdom. All of these different things. Solomon's prayer is that he recognizes that this is God's people and he needs God to give him an understanding mind to do what is right 
to deal wisely and to execute justice for the good of his people. So notice then how good governance and good rule of a king are intrinsically bound together, and they're bound together in the steadfast and faithfulness or the concrete recognition of and adherence to the authoritative God, the word of righteousness, and he who is righteousness that established that throne and that speaks in his righteousness. So the good that Solomon speaks ends up being all that is in accordance with God and his word. And evil then is portrayed throughout all of this as anything that is against God's word, and against who God is and what he says and what he does. But that word of God, Pastor Apple, it is not just a generic God, because we always kind of say that, right? The word of God, the word of God, word of God. We shorthand this. But it's not just a generic word of God. That word is very specific. As St. Paul says in Romans 10, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing through not just the word of God, no, 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 very specific, the word of Christ So notice that this word is actually about, yes, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is not just king. Notice how this is is portrayed here. Solomon's asking for wisdom. And this is not only about, you know, him. Romans 10, Romans 10 is not just words about Jesus, but rather it's, it's, it's even more than just words about Jesus. It's actually, as as St. John says in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the authoritative Word, the wisdom of God, is that which Scripture speaks of and testifies so clearly of, It's not a generic word. It's a specific word. And not even just a specific word, rather the word made flesh. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hence, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's just this, this word, right? This generic word. And the word of the cross, the words about the cross, things like this. No, but it's more than that. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom, and please God through the folly of what we preached, to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greek seeks wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, falling to the Gentiles. Now here it is. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. So wisdom is not just, um, again, propositional truth statements that are made, true or false statements I can assent to intellectually or things like that. Uh, the, the wisdom that, that Solomon speaks of that's better than gold, it's not just, oh, I know a bunch of true stuff, and I can speak a bunch of true stuff, and I know how it all fits together. Even when we're talking about truth, truth is not in and of itself propositional. It's a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the truth. All that he says, all that he is, all that he does. And Jesus is called the wisdom from on high. 
So knowing that that is what wisdom is and how wisdom connects throughout uh, scriptures, albeit briefly, we, we speak through Old and New Testament here, knowing this, we might ask, why is Jesus and all that he says and does better than gold or silver? Because boy, oh boy, uh, gold or silver make this world seem to go round in people's eyes. If I have money, uh, then I can buy whatever I want, whatever I want. I have fewer problems. This is how the world looks at this. And so we often love to find joy in buying things and doing things and all that sort of stuff in this world. And, and not any of those things are bad in of themselves. Those are gifts from the Lord. But the love of those things, the idolatry of those things is evil. Um, because as wonderful as they are, right, they're still creations of God. They're not God in of themselves. So as wonderful as gold and silver are in the world, the fact of the matter is that all of these treasures of the earth, even people, can be lost, can be taken away, can be destroyed by thieves, mods, or rust. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6 in the Sermon of the Mount. And what's more, even having all that stuff, what do gold, silver, possessions, income, material wealth, or even the greatest of relationships between your spouse and you and family, what do they get you in the hour of the death? Mark chapter 8, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? Those are what our Lord Jesus says. So the fact of the matter is, when Solomon talks about in verse 6, 16, how much better is wisdom than gold? Wisdom is eternal. Wisdom does not fade. Wisdom does not pass away because wisdom is Jesus. And all that he says and all that he is and all that he does, including his death and resurrection, the conquering of our very enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Death, you cannot end my gladness. You can't take me away from anyone that I love or care about my Lord and my Savior, those who believe in him. I thought you were going to silence the voice of my good shepherd. But it is you, death, who have lost. For I hear the voice of my good shepherd calling me even out of death and dust and ashes. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom I prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Right? Not, nothing can take that away. Christ has conquered our enemies, sin, death, and the devil. But all your stuff, all your stuff can be taken away. It can be lost in a moment by a, by a fire. We've got all the wildfires going on right now. It can be lost. Um, somebody can steal it. It can be lost in death. You often, um, you often get that interesting, interesting uh, phrase that, you, you, know, you, that uh, you can't die with the most possessions, right? He who most, dies with the most possessions wins. And you have those funny things of people trying to put up uh, little, little um, memes about uh, U-Hauls being pulled behind hearses. But, but all of that... Is, is getting at the reality of Job. I brought nothing into this world, and I can take nothing out. But notice Job's confession. It's, it's not, look at how hard I've worked. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So to, to cling to Christ gives you far more treasure and gain. Faith in Christ like a little child. And I don't mean innocent, I don't mean trusting, right? We, we establish child as dependent. Not innocent because any of you who ever had a toddler knows how they'll do something, they'll take something, they'll go hide from you and you still got to chase after them. Uh, you know how any of you who's ever taught a child how to swim knows that you, they're not trusting. You can be in a field and say, Dad's got you, and they just keep backing up, right? Not innocent, not trusting, but totally and utterly dependent upon 
the wisdom from on high, Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. That is the wisdom. And, and not even death can take life from you because you live even though you die for Jesus is the resurrection. Yeah, there's that, that resurrection background again, the foundation for the book of Proverbs. Pastor Philip, like looking ahead, verse 18 is one of those verses that's pretty commonly known, I think. There's even a, a modern proverb, or it's often quoted in the King James English, pride goeth before the fall, which is, it, uh, it admittedly, you know, meshes that verse, it pushes that verse together. Pride goes yeah. before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. What's so bad about pride in verse 18? What's so good about this lowly spirit of verse 19? All right, so when we look at when we when we just looked at everything with when it comes to wealth, we looked at everything from the outside, right? These are things that I, I cling to that can be taken away from me. Now we're going to look a bit more introspectively. And pride is actually an elevation of yourself and your own ways and your own thoughts over and against the Lord and everyone else. Right, So we often think, though we would never admit it, um, some people might be bold as to admit it, though we would never admit it necessarily outright to people, we act uh, quite honestly as if God did not matter and as, we, as if we mattered most. We think that we know better than everyone else. We think that we know smarter. We think that we know the situation, even given a five-second, ten-second news clip and that we can judge anything and everyone that comes along based upon that. And if everyone were to shut up for five minutes and listen to me, then this house, then this church, then this city, then this state, then this country would be a better place, right? I mean, opinions run rampant on this stuff. And, and dividing lines are, are the lifeblood of social media, <laughs> right? I mean, this is just it. Everybody takes a, a stand on everything, and if everyone would shut up and listen to me, then this, this would be it. It's pride arrogance. It's all about me. I think I know better. I, I, I'm, my own, I'm my own person. I'm my own God. You might even echo this back uh, in the words of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. You might take this back to Genesis. Desire to be like God, equal to God, knowing good and evil. That is the temptation, to put ourselves in the place of God, rather than recognizing that we are not the creator, creation. So, you see this all over the place, even Jesus walking with his disciples, Matthew 18. We just sort of had that reading not too long ago in the three-year lectionary that the disciples come uh, to Jesus and they're arguing. They're having an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this gets back to what we just said moments ago. And Jesus will have nothing to do with this argument. He will have nothing to do with playing their games about jockeying for position, who's the greatest, you know, uh, whatever measure of standard they use who sat next to Jesus, who spoke clearly about him and his word, who spoke the faithful proclamation, you know, who cast out the demons. I don't know, I don't know what they're jockeying for, but the fact of the matter is the arguing of who's the greatest shows that pride and arrogance. And Jesus will have none of it. So he says, greatest? You want to talk about greatest? And I'm paraphrasing here. Gentlemen, let me tell you something. He takes a child, and what we said about a child, nothing in the ancient world, right? Lowly, utterly dependent. You want to talk about greatest? Let me tell you about greatest. Unless you turn and be like this child, you won't even get in. And so we had talked about how this works. And he said, and he said, it goes on to say, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So a child's picture is not one of trusting or, or even, um, even one of, of necessarily... 
um, just acceptance, blind acceptance of words. A child in this context of Matthew 18 and throughout Scripture is viewed very much as lowly, as humble, as utterly dependent, um, as the last person that you would expect ever to get in the kingdom of God. So as, as this develops throughout Matthew, Jesus is going to continue to talk about this sort of thing that is echoed all over the book of Proverbs, and here especially, here in, in the verses we're talking about uh, from, from 18 and 19 of, of, of Proverbs chapter 16, Jesus is going to make this comment that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, meaning those who, who trust, like the rich young ruler who comes along, right, and, and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Everybody looks at that guy, that guy's got great wealth, that guy's getting into the kingdom, he must have done something right to have the favor of the Lord, man. Um, and Jesus says, oh, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Hint, 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 you don't believe I'm God, you need to believe I'm God. You want to talk about what you must do, you want to talk about your, your works, and then he so, sort of summarizes it, or he gives you a long, lengthy explanation uh, of the commandments. He just lists a bunch of commandments. Uh, but he could have well said what he said in, in uh, chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But he says, he lists the commandments, and the, and the guy says, oh, all this I've done since I, since I was a boy. And he says, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. As if to say, no, you do not follow the commandments perfectly because you don't fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You don't recognize me to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, God in the flesh for you. And the guy won't do it. He goes away. And the disciples view that and say, really? There, kind of, there's no hope for this. There's no hope for him? Like, he's not getting into the king, kingdom of God? Then, then, then we're not getting into the kingdom of God either. If this rich man, who we're expected to be first in the kingdom, he's got all this great wealth and stuff, he can't get in. Uh, then there's no hope for us. And Jesus affirms that. He says, with man it is impossible. But with God all things are possible. So this, I, this whole understanding then of, of, um, of, of humility and, and pride being put to death. Nothing in your hand. You are, you are nothing. You deserve nothing except the wages of your sin, which is death. But he who was first in the kingdom of God, Jesus, became last. He took your sin, he bore your sin in the flesh, that you who are last and least likely ever to get into the kingdom of God might be made first. Matthew 5 echoes this as well. This is, you know, Proverbs 18 and 19, uh, Matthew, they're, they're closely tied together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So that lowly spirit, that poor and that lowly spirit comes, comes back. Jesus comments on that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there is a danger here in pride. Pride belongs to the devil. Pride divides us from God. It sets us up as our own God and sets us against God, and it sets us against our neighbor. And the kingdom of heaven cannot be earned by you. If you want to get into heaven, if you want to know what you must do to be saved, don't sin. Don't ever sin. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which literally means that if it all depends upon you, you're not getting in. So recognize that everything that you have in life, even salvation, is a gift from God. And to fail to recognize that is to fall here in time. Yep, you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. Things, you're not going to be as great as you think you are. There's always somebody better, and you will realize that. But it also means that eternal resurrection consequence, that you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. 
Because the only way that anyone gets into the kingdom of heaven is to be utterly dependent upon Jesus and to look to him and him alone in faith. Pastor Philippeck, we've got about three minutes here on the morning. There's so much good stuff here in the book of Proverbs in, in verses that we just aren't going to have time to get to. Uh, what I'd like to do to close this morning is to to go from this text and how do we see Christ here? We know that all of Scripture is about Christ crucified and risen for us. How do we see that here in this section of Proverbs with about three minutes? Yeah, so there is, I think this uh, time of ours has shown uh, our listeners some great places that you can see Christ, that, that this is not just um, random propositional truth, but when we start talking about the wisdom, we have to go to who it is that is wisdom and how Solomon looks at this. And we, we've traced this for our listeners so far about how the wisdom ends up being Jesus Christ, the king, the king's throne. It's actually... A subservient, and it is, it is the ruling place, though somebody sits on it. God, the Lord is our righteousness. The King of Kings rules. And as he rules and curbs sin through, through his representatives, and he deals wisely with his people, then that goodness and mercy and the love of God is reflected when sin is punished. And yet, there's also the wisdom that in the midst of that sin is the goodness of the Lord, the sweetness of the Lord, as, as, Psalm, or as the Proverbs 16, 23, and 24 say, that even in the midst of sin brings healing to our soul and body to have that good news, that, that gracious word of life brings that sweet healing balm for our souls, the preaching of, of the wisdom from on high, Jesus Christ brings that healing to sinners just as he brings that life here in time in the world through his rulers. That is all him. So it is in, in our own lives in eternity with the eye of the resurrection that, that he deals with us it, with his sweet words, with his gracious words. And, you know, to, to kind of wrap 20 into this, whoever gives thought to that word, that word made flesh, will discover good. And he who trusts in the Lord will be blessed. And not just the blessings that you receive here in time. Yes, you will receive all of those things because our Father knows what you need. And he will give them to you. But even more so that gracious wisdom that Jesus bore our sin and became our Savior. That we could not save ourselves, so he came to save us. The last and the lowly, the prideful, the arrogant and that through his word, we day by day are called to live humbly and walk humbly with our God in repentance and faith, to cling to him and to him alone, to be as dependent upon our king for that goodness and mercy and that love and that good word that gives life like the spring rain of the morning. So it is with Jesus Christ who rules over us in this world and in eternity. Pastor Adam Philippek is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Ledgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Proverbs 16, verses 8 through 24. Pastor Philippek, thanks for being our guest again today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.